This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now here's today's podcast. Open your Bible with me to Exodus chapter 20. One of the significant scenes from the book of Acts tells the story of when the Apostle Paul visited the city of Athens. At the time, Athens was one of the global hotspots of intellectual influence, like a modern-day Oxford or Boston. And as he walks the streets, Dr. Luke tells us that Paul's spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols, Acts 17, verse 6. What agitated him so deeply was he saw how passionate the people of Athens were about worship, but they were going about it the wrong way. And so Paul preached the gospel to the Athenians, and he pointed out the error of their ways as he worked his way to the center of public conversation. In a place called the Areopagus, he stood before the most powerful influencers of the city, and said, beginning in Acts 17, verse 22, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of a man. What struck me in the reading of this passage this last week is how Paul forged together the first and second commandment to point out what was wrong with their worship. The people of Athens were in fact worshiping the wrong God and in the wrong way. So he explains to them that the one true God doesn't need idols forged of man-made things or images imagined from the subconscious of a worshiper. Rather, the correct God must be worshipped in the correct way. The sophisticated, learned, well-to-do people of Athens were going about it all wrong. So Paul appeals to the first and second commandments to teach them about biblical worship. If the apostle were to walk through the streets of Collin County, I wonder what kind of objects of worship he would make note of. Perhaps there are only a few places in our community where people gather to worship literal idols. I think about the Hanuman Temple in Frisco. Yet there are other ways that our worship may still not be free of idols. Paul might view our shiny new construction shopping centers and malls as places, yes, where some simply go to buy things we need, but where many 
bow down to the idol of materialism instead of giving thanks to the giver of every good and perfect gift. Paul would possibly see um, our $100 million sporting venues. That's plural. Where some go to enjoy the spirit of teamwork and competition. But notice how others treat these places like temples where people gather to praise a particular team. Maybe he would notice how some of us even revere our career or venerate our vehicle or pay homage to a handheld device. The sophisticated, learned, well-to-do people of Collin County could be going about it all wrong. And we need the Ten Commandments to teach us about biblical worship. One of the things I pray in our study of the Ten Commandments is that these words don't just stay on the surface of our lives, but by God's grace they would sink into our hearts. Even though these verses are familiar to most of us, they are not easy for any of us. These words are not designed to be a safe and sanitary literature piece where we're meant to walk away each Sunday feeling better about ourselves. They are meant, rather, to make us look into the blazing holiness of God, to see how desperate our need for His grace is, to look to Christ who has fulfilled the law in our place, and to live lives of worship as His chosen, beloved, redeemed people. While the first commandment instructs us who to worship, The second commandment teaches us how to worship. The worship of a false god is forbidden, as is the worship of the true God, but in a false way. What we learn from this command is that we must approach God on His terms, not on terms of our own making. We'll highlight three truths from this passage that teach us how to worship by the book. First, we must worship God as commanded in Scripture. Second, worship the God revealed in Scripture. And third, worship God with love and obedience. Would you join me in standing as we read now Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 to 6, God's holy and inerrant word. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth below, or that is in the water under the earth. You should not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. The first truth we learn from our passage is that we must worship God as commanded in Scripture. Verse 4 records the voice of God thundering again in the ears of His people. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. The phrase carved image comes from the Hebrew root to hew or to shape, which indicates the physical reproduction of some form. 
Your translation might say, do not make an idol or a graven image or even a carved God. And all of these are getting at the same idea. God's people are not to look to a made thing while they worship the maker of all things. That's the primary thesis of the second commandment. God's people are not to look at a made thing while they worship the maker of all things. This command is not against imagination or creativity in general. No, God gave us those as good gifts to be used. But this forbids making anything that we would serve, bow down to, as an object of worship. Why are idols forbidden? Well, the first reason we explored last week. Idols are forbidden because God alone is worthy of our worship. It is to Him alone we bow down to and serve. But the second reason we now build upon is this. Idols dishonor God. Idols dishonor God. Let's remember where we are in the course of redemptive history. The Israelites had just spent 400 years in Egypt, and they had seen the false gods of the Egyptians represented by all kinds of idols. Replicas of Ra with the head of a falcon. Those of Isis with wings as eagles. Anubis represented by a jackal. Sebek with the smile of a crocodile. But the God who speaks, the God who redeems, the God who alone is worthy of worship would not be known by any icon. He would be known by his word. J.I. Packer helps us understand how images dishonor God's character by concealing his glory. Listen to what he writes. The objection to pictures and images is that they are inevitably conceal, is that they inevitably conceal most, if not all the truth about the personal nature and character of the divine being whom they represent to the extent to which the image fails to tell the truth about God. To that extent, you will fail to worship God in truth. Any handcrafted idol, every man-made image, each well-imagined picture fails to tell the whole truth about our God. Thomas Watson said, imagine how absurd it would, it would be to kneel before the picture of a king when the king himself is present. And our king is always present. Our king is ever near. And this gets to the very point of the command. God's presence cannot be constrained or controlled by an idol. Now, Exodus 32 is one of the most heartbreaking scenes in the Bible. It shows how idols dishonor God. Moses is up on the mountain meeting with the Lord while the Israelites are restlessly waiting for him down below. They grow tired of waiting, and so they say to Aaron, Moses' brother, make for us a God who will go before us, Exodus 32.1. Aaron leads them in melting some of the gold jewelry which God had given to his people as they were leaving Egypt. It was meant for use in the tabernacle. But here they fashion for themselves a golden calf, and then the people say to each other, this is our God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, Aaron's trying to be careful. He's trying to center the people. This is about the worship of Yahweh. 
But at the same time, they're giving praise for salvation and offering burnt offerings to a dumb bull. They worship God and an idol. Think about that scene against the backdrop of verses 4 and 5. Verse 5 specifically, they are commanded not to make, bow down, or serve an idol. And note the devastating progression of false worship. First, they made something, this golden calf, which God had specifically forbade. We're not sure if they physically bowed down when they were given these offerings, but certainly they did in their hearts. And they served this idol. I did some work on that word serve this week. It actually can be translated, listen to this, become slaves. Think about the people we're talking about. The people God had redeemed from slavery. And now before they even leave Mount Sinai, the Israelites may be physically free, but they've become spiritual slaves to an idol. And then breaking the second commandment, they also break the first. And if you know the story, it will not be the last time. When we get worship wrong, we get everything wrong. There's a Dutch theologian named Joachim Duma uh, who sums up the point, well, I don't read Dutch, but it was translated into English and I read it. This is very helpful. If you stand with your back to idols, then you must still learn to kneel properly before the God of Israel. You can get rid of all your religious idols, but in their place, you must not erect an image of Yahweh. You may serve no other gods, but the Lord in turn wants to be served in no other way than he has commanded. In some, the first commandment points to the true God. The second to true religion. In the ancient world, an idol was an attempt to represent the deity, but also to control the deity. Let us not be found guilty of doing either. Rather, let us worship God as commanded in Scripture and keep ourselves from idols. The Apostle John ends the first of his epistles with those words, little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's what this text reminds us of. Second, we must not worship a God of our own making, but worship the God revealed in Scripture. In the year 2011 was the celebration of the 400th anniversary of the King James Version of the Bible. Any King James Version users right now? Okay. You've left your these and thous at home. Well... um, One vicar in the Church of Wales used the event to publicly announce he no longer believed in the God revealed in the Bible. So he used scissors to cut out parts of the Bible that spoke of God in a way that he disagreed with. And then he burned them. He was not the first or the last that will do this. When the BBC interviewed him about the incident, he was quoted saying, I find it highly offensive that people would think I've given my life to serving that type of God, and that I would regard the words of the King James Bible as sacred truth. Well, let me just go on record on behalf of myself and the Trails Church that we will serve the type of God as revealed in Scripture, and we regard every word of it as sacred truth. Mm. Now, perhaps 
we would not go to this extreme. We wouldn't take scissors and cut out parts of our Bible. But many in our society may be found guilty of the same thinking of this misguided minister. It is thought to be culturally polite for someone to begin a statement about God like this. I like to think of God as. What typically follows those three dots is some kind of half-truth or a man-made description of a God found nowhere in the Bible. However, God did not leave it to us to define him. Rather, he told us who he is and what he's like. As we'll see, while, um, while our ears hear this kind of statement as spiritual humility, God defines it as spiritual hatred toward him. So any sentence describing God should never begin with, I like to think, but ought to begin with something like, the scripture says. And so let us hear together how God speaks of himself, and let us worship the God revealed in scripture. There are three divine attributes found in verses five and six that teach us what God is like. He is jealous, he is just, and he is love. Let's deal with each of these perfections in order. First, God is jealous. Notice the flow of thought between verses four and five where we discover the primary reason God has prohibited idols and images in worship. He is jealous for the worship of his people. The Hebrew word there for jealous is a combination of two thoughts, zeal, passion for his own glory, and jealousy. However, the jealousy of God is not the green-eyed, envious monster that you and I experience. Rather, the holy jealousy of God is this blazing, all-consuming fire for his people. Moses uses that language in Deuteronomy 4.24. Um, I had a helpful conversation with a, an Old Testament scholar named Christopher Wright a couple of weeks ago. This is how he described the jealousy of God in a commentary on the book of Exodus. He said, a God who is not jealous would be as contemptible as a husband who didn't care whether or not his wife was faithful to him. Part of our problem with this profound reality is that we have come to regard religion, like everything else, as a matter of consumer choice. We resent monopolies, but the unique and incomparable only living God makes exclusive claims and has the right to a monopoly on our love. God has made an exclusive claim on the love of his people, like a husband to a wife. Now, if a handsome fellow came up and talked to my sweet Jamie Lynn, that would be just fine. But if he started playing with her hair or whispering sweet nothings in her ear, or holding her hand, my heart would pound with righteous jealousy. Other things might pound as well. <laughs> this is Texas. This is legal. <laughs> Why? Because she has pledged herself completely to me, and I have pledged myself completely to her. The God who has chosen us and redeemed us is jealous for our love and worship alone. 
he will not share his bride with another. He will not share you with another. So let us pledge ourselves to him alone. He is the jealous God. Second, God is just. Idolatry is a serious sin with serious consequences. Verse 5 lists the consequences of worshiping the right God in the wrong way and extends well beyond the life of the worshiper. God's telling his people how easy the sin of idolatry is taught and caught and passed on to our children and even our children's children. The word visit tells the story. When scripture speaks of God visiting his people, it is with the grace and peace of his presence. But when he visits his enemies, it is with his perfect justice, his unwavering judgment. Notice this is not some sort of generational curse as some churches teach of. Rather, this is naturally how the sins of the fathers are passed down to their children. We want to hold to a whole Bible understanding of this. Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 20 tells us this. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. So there we see that each person stands for themselves, accountable for their own actions before the holy God. Only in Exodus 18, that's the story of, of people not following their fathers into idolatry, but wanting to honor God. Here, the children, notice the word, hate God, just like their parents did. And so naturally, God will visit them with just punishment for their sin. And notice it doesn't matter how sincere the worshiper is if it's being done in a wrong way. What matters is that we worship not a God of our own making, but the God revealed in Scripture. God is just. And finally, verse 6. Verse six God is love. So God is jealous. God is just. God is love. Verse 6 tells us of God's loving kindness, of his hesed that we've come to often see in our study of the Psalms. This is his covenantal, undeserved, never giving up, everlasting, always and forever love for his people. I want you to notice the judgment of God runs in this verse for the third or fourth generation. The love of God to thousands of generations. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let us pause here to exhort one another to be people who don't cut out parts of the Bible for ourselves that align with our thinking. Rather, to call one another to align our thinking with what Scripture says. The Bible never blushes of who God is. It never gets red-faced and apologetic about revealing the character and the nature of God. Neither should we. We don't have to apologize for who our God is. We don't have to run PR for him to make him fit the culture norms of our day. He rules and reigns above the culture of our day. And so let's stand on the word, under the word, believing not a God of our own making, not a man-made deity to make us feel better about ourselves, but to stand on the word and worship the God revealed in Scripture. And finally... 
The last instruction about worship we'll highlight this morning teaches us that we are to worship God with love and obedience. Tucked right here at the end of this promise of verse 6 is a conditional clause for God's people. God doesn't pledge himself, covenant himself and his love to just anyone, but to the people he has chosen and redeemed and welcomed into his burning, holy presence. The way that we worship by the book are two sides of the same coin here, love and obedience. Let's look at each of these. The first side of the coin is simply love to God. To them that love me, verse 6 says. Last week we drew a line from the first commandment to the great commandment, showing that the first commandment, to have no other gods but God, must be seen through the lens of the great commandment. We should love him, heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second commandment also points our attention back to loving God as an act of worship. Isaac Watts once once said it like this, The great God values not the service of men if the heart be not in it. The Lord sees and judges the heart. He has no regard for outward forms of worship if there's no inward adoration, no affection. It's therefore a matter of infinite importance to have the whole heart engaged steadfastly to God. Part of worshiping God according to Scripture is we love Him. We love Him with our whole hearts. The second way for us to worship by the book is obedience. The final words of the command are these three words, keep my commands. Uh, Jesus wed the same pair of ideas in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, surely all of the commandments of God are in view here, but with our focus today, I want to outline a few ways we can worship God by obeying him. And I'm going to list four massive categories that we don't have time for today. I would just give you these. to This is your homework. You can explore these themes. And then we're going to move on quickly. The first is this. To worship according to Scripture means that first, our worship must be Trinitarian. We worship the God who is three in one. To say it in Pauline language, we worship the Father through the Son by the Spirit. So Trinitarian. Second, our worship must be Christ-centered. We worship Jesus as the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15 says. We'll get to more of that in just a moment. So to worship God is for us to worship Christ. Third, to worship in spirit and truth, John 4.24. Uh, if you have time this week to read the story of the account of how Jesus teaches the Samaritan woman about worship that God desires, I'd encourage you to read all of chapter 4. And then fourth, Worship is to live as a living sacrifice, Romans 12.1. So this isn't the things we, it's not contained to what we do when we gather, but calling us to all of life. But I do want to expound for just a moment on our worship as a church. There's just the four broad categories. The Westminster Confession of Faith says the acceptable way of worship for the true God is instituted by him and so limited in his own revealed will. What that means is when we gather together, we don't just make stuff up and decide what we'll do. Instead, we look to the Bible to see how it teaches us to worship. This is called the regulative principle. This means that everything that we do together, we find either explicitly stated or implicitly stated in the Bible. 
And I want to just, just go through a number of practices so we can say, all right, so what does it look like for us to worship biblically? Well, one thing you could do is just pull out the liturgy here we have in our bulletin. And if there's anything in here that we don't find in Scripture, you should grab an elder and say, why in the world are we doing this? But let me just give you a few things, a few ways the Bible teaches us to rightly worship our triune God, the person and work of Jesus. Read the Scripture. Praise and adore God for his greatness. You can confess your sins. You can look to Christ who has forgiven your sin. Not in part, but the whole. You can pray. Instructed, commanded, welcomed in Scripture. Even right now, this is an act of worship happening all around this room where together we have gathered and opened God's Word to hear it preached. Listening to sermons is an act of worship. Communion. The wonderful family meal we share as the people of God month by month. Baptism. Let me just say, if you've never been baptized as an act of obedient worship, what prohibits you? Singing. Something we love to do together. We sing to God as an act of worship, first and foremost. We sing to one another so that the word of Christ would dwell richly in us. We would exhort one another, building each other up. That's just a starter list. There's, there's like hundreds more. You get to work and find more of them. But everything we do is acts of worship. We want to come from the word and then enjoyed as the people of God. So if the Lord were to walk through your life today, what would he find? We talked about the Apostle Paul walking the streets of Athens. And, and then I hope to not to make an image of this, but the Apostle Paul walking through Collin County. But if the Lord Jesus were to walk through your life today, what would he find? Do you worship the one true God while your arms are also full of idols? Let me just speak to you who are not Christians. Your heart hasn't been born again by faith in Jesus. I just wonder if you've, if you've cut and edited the Bible to fashion a God of your own making. You're worshiping the wrong God in the wrong way. Well, you're around people all around you who once did the same thing, but through the grace of Jesus, we've repented of our sin and looked to Christ who alone can forgive. We invite you to do that today. Tell God, I'm sorry for all the things that I've done. I've sinned against you. And look to Christ who is faithful to forgive. And dear Christian, if today the second commandment has exposed in your life some idolatry, Throw those idols down at the feet of Jesus. Come and treasure Christ more than the things of the world, the unmade one more than the made things. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. And what comfort can we find in all of this as we think about the second commandment? I came across Romans 8.29 this week, which just bathes us in truth. For those whom he, he's speaking of God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So to this people who are supposed to worship with no images, it's because we worship the invisible God and we worship Christ who is the 
perfect, exact imprint of the invisible God. And then we know from our understanding of who we are that we've been also been called the images of God, the imago Dei. So we don't worship anything made. Rather, as a made people, we worship the one who was not made. And as we do, God is at work in our lives, conforming us, transforming us to the image and likeness of Jesus. I was reading the book of Deuteronomy this week, just devotionally, and when I came to chapter 4, verse 9, it just stopped me in my tracks. This was written as a warning to the Israelites while still at Sinai, and I think this is a warning to us today. It reads, only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. So as we continue to make our way through the Ten Commandments that we'll be looking at, let us take care and keep our souls diligently and keep our Bibles open as we walk through these days and call one another to remember the things that we've seen, to treasure the forgiveness we've known in Christ and to proclaim the wonderful works of God to our friends and neighbors and coworkers and to our children. Hey, kids, will you all look at me? We, want, we will not do this perfectly. We want you to know God and to worship him rightly. And we want to do that as an example to you. So forgive us for all the times we don't. But no, it's our heart to do that. We want you to know him, to love him, to keep his commands. So let us take care that we worship the true God in the true way, free of all idolatry. And let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us in his blood. Christ has fulfilled each commandment given. So let us worship God as commanded in Scripture. Let us worship the God revealed in Scripture. And worship our God with love and obedience. And by God's grace... Let us teach our children to do the same. Let's pray now for his help. Father, thank you for your word that you have revealed yourself to us. We don't have to construct for ourselves a God of our own making. Rather, you have spoken to us through creation, through your word, through your son. Free us from all idolatry. Forgive us for attempting to worship both you and any other thing. We ask that you would be first in our hearts. That you would widen our hearts, that we would run in the freedom and joy of your commands. I ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org.